Good morning, guys. Hope everybody's doing well. Dads, granddads, happy Father's Day. Hope you enjoyed some donuts out there. You saw in the photo, I'm, I'm a dad of, of four and just really proud that I get to be a dad of those kids and so grateful for that today. So hope you enjoy your day, dads. Pastor Matthew is not here. He is preaching at Oak Hill Fellowship Church in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. That's a church that's part of the GCC network of churches that we have. So glad, glad that he gets to be up there preaching for them and spending time with them. We've been in a series called The Gospel Plus Nothing, and we've seen how that equation is so important. We're, we're five weeks in. This is going to be the last message of our series, and we've seen so far how the gospel plus nothing saves us and justifies us and liberates us. Last week, we saw how the gospel plus nothing makes us one, and so we're going to finish this week. We're going to see how the gospel plus nothing frees us to rejoice. And so we're going to be in Philippians 3. If you have a Bible, go ahead and start opening to Philippians 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few over there on the table. You can go and grab one. Philippians 3 is where we're going to be hanging out. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for your expression of grace to us that so many dads in our lives are. But God, I do pray for those this morning who, who remember the fact that they've, they've lost a dad. For those who would say that their dad hasn't been an expression of of your grace in their life. God, remind us today that you are the perfect heavenly father. You're the perfect dad, and that we can look to to you to know that you're better than any dad we could possibly have here on earth, Lord. And God, as we open your word, as we begin to feast on your word, I pray that you would feed us, Lord, that you would nourish us by your word, that you would use your word to change us, transform us, and draw us into worship and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So I read this article in the Wall Street Journal a few years back, and it was about these deer who, live near, who lived near the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. So they had lived uh, near the border between West Germany and Czech Republic, and it was this electric fence that existed upon the border, and so they couldn't cross from one side to the other. And so that fence sort of divided democracy and communism, and I don't think the deer knew about that. Maybe they understood that, I don't know. Uh, but in 1989, the fence came down. Right, so the fence came down, and uh, what biologists discovered was that even though the fence was down, the deer wouldn't cross. So they'd, they'd go right up to the border, and they would just stand there and not cross. And what's interesting is that the deer that they discovered wouldn't cross were born 30 years after the fence came down. And so the prohibition to not cross had been passed down from generation to generation by these deer. And what was worse was that they had built this incredible nature preserve on the Czech Republic side that the deer on the West Germany side could have enjoyed, but wouldn't. And so those deer on the West Germany side missed out on the joy that was available to them because they lacked confidence that they were free to cross the border. And so our big idea this morning is this, confidence in our union with Christ frees us to rejoice in the Lord. Confidence that we've been united to Christ because of the gospel frees us for joy. So I want to show you that. I want to show you that in three ways from Philippians 3. One is the poison, two is the antidote, and three is the response. So Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul's writing. He's writing to the Philippians. He's giving them instructions on how to live out their faith. And one of the themes he can't stop coming back to is joy. Over and over again in Philippians 3, 15% of the verses in Philippians, the book, is about joy. And so here's what he says, verse 1. 
finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. And so here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, rejoice, but there's a warning coming. Rejoice, but there's a danger that I need to let you know about, and I've told you about this before, but it's going to be safe for you if I tell you this again. And this warning that he's going to talk about, it's going to protect their ability to rejoice in the Lord. And so here it is. Paul's coming strong. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. A few weeks ago, Pastor Matthew preached. That's, that's actually how we started this series. He preached on Acts 15. And in Acts 15, we met our friends, the Judaizers. It says in verse 1, some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so it's the Judaizers and what they're promoting that Paul is actually warning against here in Philippians 3, verse 2. And so the poison that Paul is saying will absolutely destroy our ability to rejoice in the Lord is legalism. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Imagine if I was preaching along and I was like halfway through my sermon and all of a sudden I stop and I look at the ceiling and then I look down at Jewel and I scream, Jewel, look out! Right? Why would I do that? I would do that because there's something that I see that she wasn't able to see at that moment. Like from up here, I have a vantage point where I can see that there's some portion of the ceiling that's about to fall toward her in her direction and so I'm screaming at her to look out. And secondly, I'm screaming because it's urgent, right? It requires alertness from her. She might need to evaluate where she is, evaluate the situation, and then potentially move in some direction to get out of the way of that thing. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to spend some time looking out for legalism like we need to so that we can be free to rejoice in the Lord like we're called to. So let's do that. Let's start with a definition. Legalism is putting confidence in anything other than Christ and his finished work for one's standing before God. Putting confidence in anything other than Christ. So it could be circumcision, probably not for us, but circumcision or obedience or some man-made rule added on top of God, some spiritual measuring stick, anything other than Christ. Putting confidence in that for one's standing before God. And so what Paul's going to do in this verse 2 that we just read He's going to describe the legalist, and he's going to use three labels to show the damage that they leave in their path. Over the past couple of weeks, I was preparing this sermon, and God brought me two or three different occasions where I just met someone, and I didn't even know they were a believer, and five minutes later, we're talking about the damage that legalism has inflicted on their life in some way, some way that they experienced legalism earlier in their life, and they're still trying to recover from it. It shook their faith. And so I just want to ask in this room right now, how many would say you have experienced in some way, or you know someone who's experienced in some way, the damage that legalism leaves in its path? Raise your hand. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 2, one more time. Look out for the dogs. This is actually kind of interesting because we've seen in the Bible that Jews use the word dogs to refer to Gentiles. It's flipped here, right? So Paul's writing to Gentiles mainly, and he's using it to refer to Jews. And this is not your house pet, right? This is wild dogs. They're roaming. They're scavenging. They're quarreling. They're attacking. 
Matthew 6, Jesus actually talks about dogs. Here's what he says. Don't give dogs what is holy. The reason is because dogs are unfit for holy things. Here's the reputation of dogs. Dogs defile whatever they touch. And so how does legalism defile the church? Check this out. There's actually another place in the Bible where where dogs and evildoers are hanging out together. I want to show you this. Psalm 22, it starts out like this. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Skip down to verse 16. It says, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. What are they doing? They've pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Obviously, this is a prophetic psalm, right? This is pointing to the cross. It's pointing to Calvary. The dogs here are so ravenous for blood and for garments, they're completely oblivious to what Christ is accomplishing on the cross right in front of them. And so how does legalism defile the church? It minimizes or it ignores the gospel. Many of you know I drive an old car. It's a 17-year-old Civic, and it's beat up, and it's like interior, exterior, it's not, in good, it's not in good condition. Cosmetically, the upholstery's coming out. My kids hate this car. I mean, they don't want to ride in it. The stick, the stick makes all this noise. It's stick shift, yeah. And, it's, and it's, uh, there's no power windows, there's no power locks. It's, it's only got 95,000 miles. This thing is gonna last. It's a Honda Civic. It's gonna last for like 15 more years. Sorry, kids. But if you want to defile my car, you don't take a bat and just start beating on the side of it. You don't go inside of it and start ripping out the upholstery. Actually, I think my car's been broken in five times. Every time it's like there's nothing in there. There's nothing to do. Um, If you want to defile my car, you open up the hood and you rip out the engine. Because when you've done that, you've removed its purpose and its power. I think we tend to think that the church is, is, is defiled most when there's sin in the church, which you know, we want to be attacking sin. We want to be killing sin. But sin is going to be in the church to some extent on this side of heaven because the church is made up of me and you and, and sinners. I think the church is most defiled when you remove the gospel from the church, when you minimize the gospel in the church. Because when you do that, you remove its purpose and its power. John Tyson says this, if you're a Christian, Satan's goal isn't for you to become a big sinner. It's for you to think that you believe the gospel when you really don't. And so what does that look like in a church, I wonder? How does that look? We want to look out for this, right? So how does that look in a church? There's some churches that say that they believe the gospel, but the flavor of the sermons and the teaching and the Bible studies and the discipleship is such that the commands of God take center stage over the promises of God, right? And so what you end up with is you end up with a lot of law, and a little bit of gospel. And we know at Fairfax Bible that that's, that's not good, right? That's lethal. That's a poison that will kill very quickly. Law without gospel in large doses kills quickly. But we want to look out for law without gospel or law with a little gospel in small doses. That's the kind of poison that you take every day and it kills you over time. And so how do we recognize that? Like what's, what's the, indicator for light, for, the indicator light for us to see a lot of law and a little gospel? Here it is. So you're leaving a teaching or you're leaving a sermon or you're leaving a Bible study or you're leaving discipleship and you feel overly confident in yourself or you feel totally discouraged in yourself. That's how you feel afterwards, right? Your gaze, as you leave that place, your attention lands not on Christ but on you, but on yourself and it stays there and Christ is nowhere 
to be found. If you notice that, that's, that's an indicator light. And here's the result of that. Your joy will be poisoned. The reason for that is because you're going to think, okay, when you're doing a good job, you're going to think that you're doing great, and so you're happy. And when you're not doing a good job, you're going to think that you're not doing great, and so you're not happy. And so you're on a roller coaster, right? The ups and downs of your performance are going to coincide with the ups and downs of your joy, right? And so we need the gospel. Legalism defiles because it ignores the gospel, and so we want to look out. Number two. Second warning from Paul that shows the damage legalists do, look out for the evildoers. This word here is actually evil workers. So the Judaizers are are working, but they're working evil. And this word evil is, is kind of a generic word, but Paul actually gets more specific. Second Timothy 3, he says, evil people, what do they do? They deceive, and they're being deceived. And then in Titus 1, it says, many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Here's what evildoers do. They enslave through deception. And so what's the deception? What's the lie of legalism that we want to look out for? Nobody walks around saying, you know, I'm a legalist. But where does legalism come from? I want to show you this quote. Sinclair Ferguson says, legalism is the default position of the human heart. That every Christian we meet is a legalist by nature. So where do you think legalism shows up in the Bible for the first time? It's probably not a hard question. Where does it show up for the first time? It's not in some religious ceremony. It's in the one place that it shouldn't be, Genesis 3, right? God puts Adam and Eve there. He says to, he tells them to have, to to tend the garden, to have fellowship with him. He gives that one command about that one tree. Then we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's a Satan-made rule, actually, added on top of God's. And, but Eve says, no, we may actually eat of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which actually is an, a, a man-made rule added on top of God's. But we read this, and we read this a lot, a thousand times, right? We always think when we read this, Satan is corrupting the clarity of God's word. Satan is destroying uh, or denying the authority of God's word, but what's actually happening here? Like what Satan is really doing, he's destroying the character of God's person, right? What he's saying is you can't trust that God's out for your good. That if you obey God fully, here's what's going to happen. You're going to miss out. Like you're going to have FOMO and you're going to be miserable. So what I want to show you here, I want to show you that the lie that's at the root of both legalism and disobedience is the same, and it's an assault on God's character. Here's the lie. God's not generous. God's not gracious. If I want to get what he's holding back, it's up to me. That's the lie. God's not generous. He's not gracious. He's holding back. It's up to me. So we do one of two things, right? We, we try to go around God to get what we think is best by rule breaking. We call that disobedience. Or number two, we try to get God to give us his best by earning it through rule following. It's, it's one or the other, same root. Obviously, Adam and Eve, they chose door number one, or Satan really tempted toward door number one, right? But the root of rule breaking and the root of relying on rule following is the same thing. God's not generous. He's not gracious. He's holding back, and it's up to me. Guys, that happens in my heart. Like, I know that that happens in yours too. We have those moments where we feel that way. 
Imagine if Satan or the serpent chose door, door number two instead of door number one. So let's say he goes up to Adam and Eve, and here's what he says. He says, you should build a one-mile radius, 10-foot-tall fence around that tree so you can't even get close to it. And then call out to God, present to God what you've done to prove to him that you're worthy of all that he's holding back from you, and he might let you right into that fence and give you a bite of that fruit. The fall of man still would have happened. Same root. God's not generous. He's not gracious. It's up to me. And so that's the lie that we need to look for around us and in us. Legalism enslaves through deception. Number three, the third warning, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about circumcision, right? But he's not actually using the word for circumcision. He's using the word mere cutting. What they're doing is they're just cutting the flesh, right? What they do doesn't make anything, doesn't cause them to, to become God's people. It literally just mutilates the body. And so what's the motive of the Judaizers? What are they after? We actually find that out in Galatians 6. I want to show you this. Galatians 6.13, it says, The Judaizers desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Right? And so... So, so they want to manipulate, they want to control people for their own glory, right? So they become fixated on this one thing. They become fixated on circumcision, which makes sense. That's the path to Judaism. That's going to be the measuring stick for spirituality that these Judaizers are choosing. But if you've been part of a church culture that's, that's legalistic in some way, you've probably seen other measuring sticks, right? It's not going to be circumcision, but it's something else. How does that happen in a church so that we can look out for it? I think of the way that can happen, so picture, picture a church, and you have this well-respected leader in a church, and what they do is they elevate an application of Scripture to the level of a command of Scripture. <clears throat> and so let's just say for an example here, it's a conviction about homeschooling. Like, you think that homeschooling is the way to go, and the way that you communicate that as a leader is, it's not just best for my family, homeschooling is God's best for every family. And so that idea proliferates throughout the church. There begins to be this pride in your church, right? That you feel like your church sees some things that other churches don't. You think your church is going after God more than other churches are. And your source of joy is no longer in Christ. Now it's in your conduct, right? Now it's in the conduct of the people around you. And that family who chooses not to homeschool, they're going to send their kids to public or private school. They need to be corrected. You need to take them over to the side and correct them for what they're doing. There's also another part of the legalistic spirit. This is the, this is the other side of the coin of the legalistic spirit. I want to show you this same verse, Galatians 6.13. It says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Right? So, so the twin sister of the manipulation and control of legalism is hypocrisy. Right? And hypocrisy drives people away from the church and away from Jesus on a large scale. Sam Storms is helpful here. He says this, Hold your conviction with passion and zeal, but do not seek to enslave the consciences of others who may disagree with you. And so I just want to stop here. We've just been through three damages of legalism from this verse here, right? And so I just want to pause for a second. I just want to say, church, if, if you see this, like... We all need to be looking out, not just me, not just the elders, not just the leaders. We all want to look out. If you see 
this sort of thing happening at Fairfax Bible, would you come and talk to me? I mean, I, I promise, I, I hope that, that all, or one of the elders, I hope that we'll, we'll be humble in the way that we respond to you if, you if you come and talk to us and just let us know what you're seeing. And so we, we all want to be looking out. Legalism does damage. It defiles, it enslaves, it manipulates, and the result is poison to our joy. Number two, the antidote. What's Paul's answer? Like, what's, what's the antidote to that? What's, what counteracts the poison of legalism so that we can be free to rejoice in the Lord? Look down at verse 3. Here's what Paul says. For we are the circumcision. For we are the circumcision. That's a weird thing to say. I know. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, I know the legalists think that performing the act of cutting off the skin seals the deal. That that's what makes them God's true covenant people, but they're wrong, right? It's not performing an act. This is what Paul's saying. Look, it's, it's faith in the act of the father cutting off his own son on the cross. That seals the deal, right? That's what makes Christians God's true covenant people. And I know that we've heard that so many times, right? We hear that all the time. But that's scandalous, like, if you're, if you're a Jew and you got a hold of this letter somehow that Paul was writing to the Philippians, you would be tearing your garments. You would be taking Paul out of the city so that you could stone him to death. Paul's declaring that it's, no, no, it's Christians. It's not Jews. It's Christians who have the fullness of God's favor aimed at them. And the cross leaves no doubt about that. The work to earn God's favor has already been accomplished God is generous, it turns out. Turns out he's gracious. Turns out we're his and he's ours. And so here's the antidote to the poison of legalism. Confidence that we've been united to Christ. Confidence that we have union with Christ because of the cross. And take a a look at what Paul does next. This is awesome. He's going to tell us what being God's people, being united to Christ, looks like. Look down again at verse 3. Here's what he says. This is, this is three marks of the believer. This is what it looks like to be a believer. And look for this. This is, this is what I want you to see in these three, these three marks. It's the replacement of the woefully insufficient self with the abundantly sufficient Christ. Check this out. Here we go. Number one, we worship by the Spirit of God. Number two, we glory in Christ Jesus. Number three, we put no confidence in the flesh. Three marks of a believer that destroy legalism and protect our joy. Here we go. Number one, we worship by the Spirit of God. So that's, that's the mark of the believer, right? We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's not foreskin surgery. It's heart surgery, right? So we heard what the Judaizer's motive was, right? What's the Spirit's motive? John 16, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to send the Spirit Here's what the Spirit's going to do when the Spirit comes. He will glorify me. That's the Spirit's motive. So the Spirit, or or the motive of the flesh, glorifies self. Motive of the Spirit, glorify Christ. So on Sunday morning, when we're, okay, Sunday morning, before anyone comes into this room, like it's dark, it's 6 a.m., and the worship team hasn't arrived yet, and the setup team hasn't arrived yet, We'll just say for the purposes of this exercise that in that case, the Spirit's not here yet, right? But when we start walking into this room, people trickle in to help set up on stage and set up for children's ministry. And then at 10.15, we got a bunch of people in here. 
Now the Spirit has arrived because the Spirit has arrived in 100 plus different places. And even now, the Spirit's here in 100 plus different places. And in every one of those places, here's the motive of the Spirit not to glorify self. Here's what the Spirit's after, even in this moment, as I'm talking right now glorify Christ in worship. We worship by the Spirit of God. That leads us to number two, which connects very closely. We glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory there is actually three different translations will have three different words. Here's the word under that, according to what I looked up in Greek. It's the word boast. We boast in Christ Jesus. And so a boast is is an identity that you stand on. It's the thing that validates you. It's what gives you confidence. It's what gives you strength. It's actually a military type idea. So picture like a, a bunch of warriors standing on the top of a hill and they're about to go into battle and they're just boasting about what they're going to do to the enemy in that battle. I'm picturing Braveheart. But you might be thinking, well, that, that's not, I mean, boasting is not always such a good thing. I found this in 1 Kings 20. This is kind of fun. So we have this story of King Ahab, and he's, he's at war with this other king, and he's sending these taunting letters back and forth to this other king. And one of the taunts he gives in one of the letters is this. He says, a warrior putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who's already won. So here's what I want to say, church. We can boast in Christ because he is a warrior who's already won, right? He's conquered sin and death and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to return in glory. And so put all of your confidence and all of your identity and all of your validation and all of your praise off of self and onto him. You can safely boast because you're boasting in Christ, Number three, this is where Paul spends most of his time. We put no confidence in the flesh. Check out the legalists. Here's what the legalists do. Back to what we looked at before. We said dogs ignore the gospel, didn't we? Why? Because they put confidence in the flesh for their salvation. We said evildoers enslave through deception. Remember the garden. They put confidence in self, in the flesh, for fulfillment. And then we saw, we saw mutilators. They were, they were manipulating for their own glory because they were putting confidence in the flesh for their validation. Christians, believers, put no confidence in the flesh. And so here's what Paul's going to do. He gave us three examples. This is example number four of putting confidence in the flesh, and it's himself. Verse four. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Here's what Paul's doing. He's powering through life, right? He's holding, picture this, he's holding in his hand this this metaphorical bag of gold that represents his earned record of righteousness, and his bag is bigger than everybody else's bag, and he's feeling pretty good about that. And then something happens. He encounters someone on the road to Damascus, and then we get to verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as Loss. That word loss, it's not that he's down to zero, it's negative. Like it's damage. I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, waste, trash, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the best thing I'm going to be saying today on stage. Here's what Paul sees. He sees for the first time the infinite worth of Christ and the infinite righteousness of Christ. And now he's got new glasses on. And so he looks down at what he's holding and he sees that it's not actually a bag of gold anymore. That the accumulation of all of his pedigree and his good works and the praise of men falls so short of God's standard that he's actually holding nothing but a bag of stinking dog poop. And it's weird to say that on stage, but that's what he's holding in his hand. Everything that he thought he gained, worthless and powerless and loss. We've been talking about Paul, right? This is Paul's story, but it's not just Paul's story, right? This is my story. This is your story. There was a study in the UK, and they found that 98% of people believe that they're nicer than the average person. Think about that stat. Nicer than the average person. Here's what we do without the gospel. We compare ourselves to others, and we become delusionally confident before God because we think we're good. We think we're nice. Here's what the Bible says. God's not going to judge us based on how good we are we think we are compared to others. He's going to judge us based on how good we actually are compared to Christ. And that's a problem, right? We're holding in our hands all of the things that we're holding in our hands. It's the accumulated evidence that we've been going around God by rule breaking or we've been trying to bribe God by rule following. It's not worthy of reward and acceptance by God. It's worthy of judgment and Rejection. That's what Paul found out. But Jesus, right? Jesus got on the cross. He received that judgment and that rejection for us as if he was holding the you-know-what in his hand. And because of the cross, here's the offer that Jesus makes to Paul and he makes to you and he makes to me. Here's the offer. If you'll acknowledge that you've been putting your confidence in your own performance. And by faith, transfer your confidence off of self and onto me. I will transfer my perfect, imperishable, blood-bought record of righteousness onto you. And you, in that moment and for all eternity, will be seen as blameless before God. That's not even the best part. Like, that's an unbelievably amazing, mind-blowing, cosmic exchange that happens there, made possible by the cross, but that just opens the door to the ultimate treasure, verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not knowing about him, right? Knowing him. An authentic, personal, intimate, life-giving relationship with the Creator That's what's of highest worth, and that's what's on offer to us this morning from this passage. Three marks of the believer who has put his or her confidence in 
union with Christ. And now we can circle back. Now we're ready to circle back to verse 1. Now we're ready for the response because the poison of legalism has been neutralized by confidence in the gospel. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We've seen movies, right, where people get poisoned and then the antidote is administered uh, at the end of the movie. And then have you noticed that they like immediately come back to life? Like that antidote is so powerful. There's a radical transformation that happens before that movie ends. And so after encountering Christ, Paul's source of joy is radically transformed. Here's what Paul discovers. He discovers a joy that no longer depends on the ups and downs of the performance of Paul, but instead a joy that depends on the perfect, unchanging person of Christ. Performance of Paul, that's a joy that's fleeting and momentary and counterfeit. Person of Christ, that's a joy that's enduring and lasting and genuine. Here's a question. This is a command, right? Rejoice in the Lord. Humans, we don't always like to be commanded to rejoice in something. Like we kind of want to rejoice in something if we're feeling like we want to rejoice in something. Listen to this. Last year, Tay and I went to uh, Italy for our 20th anniversary. It was an amazing trip. We got to go to Lake Como. And this photo was taken at the top of our, it's, it's like a rooftop terrace on the top of our hotel at Lake Como. It was beautiful. It was breathtaking. It was awesome. No kids with us. Here's the thing, there were, <laughs> there were no signs on the roof that said, you must rejoice in this view. I didn't see any. I don't think Tay saw any either. There were no signs that commanded us to rejoice in that view. But imagine if we did take kids with us, and our kids were sort of emerging out of that last stairwell onto the roof, and we looked and we saw the view, but one of my kids was doing this with their phone, Right? And I look over and I say, oh, wow, like, hey, you should probably look up and take a look at this view. And so I look back over and no, you know, they're still on their phone. I think every parent in that situation would agree that it's the duty of the parent there to commandeer the phone from them and command them to rejoice in that view because it's so much better than whatever they're trying to take joy in in front of them on that phone. When we rejoice in the Lord... That ascribes glory to God and not glory to self. It declares that my confidence is not here, it's up there, and it's so good for us. This is a command. It's not saying if you, just, if you feel like, you know, the gospel makes a way for you to be joyful and rejoice if you want to. If you're having a good day and you feel like you want to rejoice, you can rejoice. No, it's rejoice. That's what it says. It's our duty to cultivate delight. How do we do that? Just, give me, just going to give you one example this morning on how you can cultivate delight in Jesus. So imagine if, well, here, here's what, would, I'll just give it to you in the front. See and re-see the surpassing worth of Christ in his word. See and re-see the surpassing worth of Christ in his word. Imagine if I get into a, my dream college. So my daughter, she's going to be a senior next year. She's looking at schools. So imagine I get into my dream school, and it's an amazing campus. It's a great time. But I got, I got in because I had great GPA, and I got great SAT scores and great extracurriculars, and I got into that school. I earned it. I got in there, and it brought me so much joy. It was an amazing time. Is it going to increase my joy in that college if I routinely revisit the process of how the admissions committee admitted me based on my school merit? I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to enjoy that school anymore if I do that over and over again in my head. But as a Christian, 
if my ultimate joy is Christ and I routinely, in his word, see and re-see the process of how my union with him was made possible, if I regularly plunge myself into the depths of what Christ has done for me, I'm going to see more and more the depths of his unmerited favor to me. I'm going to see my need for grace. It's going to dismantle confidence in myself. I'm going to see more and more the surpassing worth of Christ in his word, and I'm going to rejoice. Our big idea was this. Confidence in our union with Christ frees us to rejoice in him. What does this mean for Monday? You're not going to see this coming because I didn't see this coming. Here's what this means for Monday. A Christ-confident Christian, not a self-confident Christian, a Christ-confident Christian is tenaciously disciplined. Why do I say that? Because actually Paul, Paul has 11 verses for us in this, in this chapter, and then he gives us verse 12, which is like the immediate application of what he just wrote, and here's what he says. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13, he's straining forward. Verse 14, he's pressing on. And so Paul knew about the dangers of discipline. Uh, He was very disciplined. We saw that before he became a believer. And that discipline kind of led him away from Christ. But when he becomes a believer, when he loses his legalism, the discipline stays. Listen to this quote, Scott Hubbard. He says this, The grace of God for many of us seems to produce a more casual Christianity a faith without a sweat. But when Paul's own discipline passed through the fires of grace, it emerged on the other side, not consumed but refined, free from the dross of self-righteousness, aglow with the Spirit's flame. And so here's what Paul's saying. Look, Christ has already made me his own. I have full confidence because of the cross that I've been united to him, so I'm joyfully with everything that I've got going after his glory. When we trust that that God is gracious and that he is generous, we start to see his commands for what they really are. His commands are meant to give joy to us, not take joy from us. And so let's be tenaciously disciplined, but not self-righteous, right? Let's be tenaciously disciplined, but not self-condemning. And let's be tenaciously disciplined, but not self-sufficient. What do we do when we fail? I mean, if you've been a Christian for 45 seconds, you know that you're going to fail at discipline. And how we respond to when we fail in that moment is so important. Matt Chandler says, you'll know you understand the gospel by what you do when you blow it. Worship team can make their way up. You know how it goes, right? You're having a bad week. Like you haven't been in God's word and you're irritable and you're selfish and you haven't been praying and it's just one of those weeks. And then you've got prayer team on Friday afternoon or you got to go to small group or you got to have one-on-one discipleship or go to church on Sunday. You know how it feels. You just feel cruddy, right? You just feel unclean. You feel dirty. What's going to make you feel better? Here's what your flesh is going to want to do. Your flesh is going to want to run to discipline to make you feel better. Two days of consistency. Like I could just forget about what happened earlier in the week. I could just Get in God's word for two days. I don't even need to think about what happened for the previous five days if I just run to discipline. And that's legalism, right? That, that's trusting in my performance. It's putting confidence in my performance to make me more presentable to God and to others and to myself. 
And that little thing right there that I do and I know you do is gonna poison your joy. We fail. Let's not run to discipline. Let's run to a person. Like, let's throw all, all of our confidence onto the fact that Jesus is merciful and that we know because of the cross that he's generous and that he's gracious and that he's gonna forgive and he's gonna restore. I wanna close with this. I just wanna ask a question. And this question for us is, is a question, this is on behalf of, of, of joy. This is a question on behalf of the joy of Fairfax Bible Church and the joy of my heart. Here's the question. Remember the deer, right? So are you standing at the border, not crossing and putting your confidence in something that you're holding? That's the question for us today. Is there something that you're trying to present to God, not as an offering to show how good he is, but you're presenting it to him as evidence to prove how good you are? Just, want to just take a second, just think about that. Think what that might be. Maybe, maybe you're boosting your confidence before God through your consistent Bible reading. Like you're, in, you're on a Bible plan, you're in God's word every day. It's awesome. But maybe you're tith- you got an automatic debit on your tithe, right? Like every month you're tithing and that's boosting your confidence before the Lord. Maybe you're here every Sunday, like you don't miss it. You've been here every day this year. You haven't missed a Sunday morning service or small group or youth group or you're on the setup team and you get up at 7 a.m. Like that's gotta boost your confidence before the Lord, right? Maybe, maybe you're on, on leadership in this church. Like that's a lot of work to lead a ministry team or to lead a small group. Maybe, maybe you're on the sound ministry. You're, you're on the worship team. You're teaching our kids. I mean, one of my kids is in there. That's, that's commendable, right? I don't know what it is. Here's what this passage calls us. It calls us not to stop doing those things. Like let's be tenaciously disciplined. But let's stop looking to those things for what they have no power to do. This passage invites us to, to, to go to the foot of the cross and to lay down our confidence in those things and then to run full speed across that border, holding in our hands only one thing, faith in the gospel plus nothing. And there, find freedom to rejoice in the nature preserve that we just heard is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, he's generous. He's gracious and he's not holding back. And it's certainly not up to us. Gospel plus nothing frees us to rejoice. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word, we get to see and enjoy the surpassing worth of Christ. God, I pray that you would empower us as a church to look out, look out for what we talked about here, Lord. And God, as we head into a time of singing, Lord, as we respond to to this word with, with this song we're gonna sing, all I have is Christ, I pray that would be true of us. God, I pray that you would show us if there's something that we're putting our confidence in, that's something that we're doing, some Christian activity that we're doing that's, that's boosting our confidence before you, something that's not Christ's finished work. God, would you, by your spirit, lead us to the cross?
Even now, Lord, as we respond in singing, lead us to the cross to lay those things down and transfer our boast off of self and onto you so we can be free to rejoice this morning in you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, Dave. Let's stand together. Let's look to Christ.